have a mission and purpose. Grace exists to challenge people to know Christ and to make Him known. If you're looking for a church, we would love for you to be a part of what God is doing here at Grace. There are a couple ways for you to start getting connected at Grace. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. And more information about service times and smaller groups can be found at ohiograce.com. We would also like to invite you to one of our morning services on Sundays. The times are 8.30, 10, and 11.30. We have a great time gathering for music, hanging out, and learning about who God is and how that impacts our lives. Thanks for watching, and we hope to see you next week at Grace. Thanks again for being here. I don't know if you caught, Andy said it at the very beginning, Easter's only two weeks away. I'm like, wow. I don't know if you, know, if, if you guys feel that like pastors do, but it just seems like, wow, that's coming up pretty fast. You, you feel that? Okay, you good. Yeah, you're with me on that. It's, it's just time's flying, it seems like. And that was the song that, uh, that we will send you if you fill that out. Again, we're just trying to update everybody's information, new uh, new church management software, and we're trying to be better connected, so help us out. All right, we're in a series called Fight, and it's, it's all about moving from fighting with to fighting for those you love. And, and the reason we're calling it Fight is just to remind everybody good relationships don't happen by accident. We don't drift into a great marriage. It takes effort. It takes energy. It takes work. We have to fight for those relationships to make them work. And that's what our series is about. We started the first two weeks talking about just some basic Christian traits, Christianity 101, what God calls us all to do that, that makes relationships better or it's just necessary for relationships. And the first was we talked about forgiveness. And if you're in a relationship that's strained or struggling or you're in a marriage that's a little bit sideways on the rocks, we're telling you, first step is you've got to be able to forgive. And, or maybe if you're the offender, you've got to be able to ask and then receive forgiveness. And that will put you on an even playing field in order for you to begin rebuilding the trust and everything that's necessary for your relationship. So forgiveness. The second week, we talked about selflessness. That God has called all believers to live in a selfless way, to interact with people in our world in a way that is considerate to them, is other-oriented. It's putting their needs on the same level of our, as our own. And so we talked about selflessness second time. These are basic Christian traits. And we are mentioning how if you're a believer, not everybody here is a believer, but if you are a believer, then you, have, you can have an advantage in doing those two things because we have this model in Jesus that he died for our sins. And so to, in order to forgive us, how he was selfless in doing that to make a way for us as people who do wrong to be reconciled to a holy and righteous God who does no wrong. So talk those things out. Now, that works in all relationships. 
We're going to drill down a little deeper on the relationship of marriage this Sunday. And as we do that, first of all, we understand not everybody's married. Not Even in the Bible, it talks that not necessarily should everyone get married and that there is a gift of singleness. And, and the Bible talks about how that can be leveraged for the kingdom. But for the far majority of people, we're really wired up for marriage. And we're going to look specifically at marriage And today, we're going to especially focus on something called the roles within marriage. And me just saying that will make some people nervous in this room right now. Whoa, what's he talking about now? Whoa. And we're going to find out what the Bible says about roles in marriage. And we're going to break it down. The way I've been doing it is just we'll use three questions to break this topic down for us. And the first is, why would God create roles in marriage? Why would he do that? Why? How does that make sense? What's the motivation there? And then secondly is what those roles are. And then third, how those roles play out in real everyday life. So that's, that's where we're heading. So buckle up and we'll do this. It'll sound familiar to some of you. Very unusual to others, all right? So question number one, why would God create roles within marriage? Well, first of all, it's he would create roles that way because of his creation. What we find out from the Bible is that we can have good relationships with people, and we can have deep friendships with people of the same gender, of the same sex. That's, that's good. Sometimes they can even be life, life-changing relationships. But God has told us that through his creation, he has actually designed men and women to come together in a unique and special relationship that God invented called marriage. And that if we do that, the far majority of us who are wired up for marriage, if we do that, it will help us, the, the institution of marriage will help us be better people. We can see this from the very beginning. So we're going to get right back to the basics, go way back to Genesis and see how this plays out. Now Genesis 2.18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now, while we're going through these roles in marriage, we're going to clear up some misconceptions. And misconception number one, probably the biggest one, it's right here. Adam is created first. Now God is talking about creating Eve. And he says, I will create a helper suitable for him. And this word helper has created a lot of misunderstandings. Because we view the word helper like this. Like if I'm talking to my five-year-old daughter and I say, hey, come and be daddy's little helper as I work on the engine of our car. You know how that goes? Hand me the screwdriver. Here's what you can do. You can hand me the screwdriver, sweetie. Thank you. No, the other screwdriver. No, that's a wrench. No, you know, it's kind of like that kind of help. And so we understand a lot of times when we're looking at that kind of help, that's really not much help at all. This is not the way God uses this word helper or the way it's used in the Old Testament. It's completely opposite from that. For example, 
the word helper in the entire Old Testament is most often used to refer to God. He is our helper. He is a help to us. He is the helper of Israel. That's how the word's used. It's completely different than the way we think about it. So the word helper in a family context, like we just talked about, would be when our student child comes up to and says to us, hey mom, hey dad, can you help me with algebra? My algebra homework. Now, why would they do that? Because they're assuming that we theoretically know more about algebra than they do, right? So we're the help. Why are we the help? Because we know more. The helper in scripture implies that the helper knows something that the helpee doesn't know. And that's what we need to remember because that is especially true in how this word is used through all the Old Testament. So we need to get that down. God is our helper. We need help from someone that knows something that we don't know. And that's why it's a help. The helper has resources that the helpy doesn't have. So helper, in this context, implies Eve, who's going to be created now as the helper, has resources and information or an approach to life that Adam doesn't have, and this will be good for Adam to be a better person. And that's how God has created us, to come together where the husband complements, or some people would say completes, the wife and the wife complements or completes the husband. That's what we see in these opening chapters of Genesis as God establishes marriage. And then there's the classic passage on God creating marriage in Genesis 2:24 and 25 where it says this. For this reason a man after Eve's created now for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. This is God instituting marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So God invents marriage, and then he's going to tell us how to make that work. But So why are there roles? Well, first of all, because of creation. And then secondly, because God has designed us in creation differently. God intentionally made us different by design. And again, that difference should be to complement each other. We excel at different things. Of course, now in our culture, there's been a lot of pushback against this in the last 20, 30 years. We get that. And although maybe not as much pushback now or the pushback has kind of changed because the research keeps proving this thing that God told us in the beginning. Boys and girls are different. They're different when they're born. They're different when they're toddlers. They're different when they're teenagers. They're different as adults. And the research keeps bearing this out. For example, this week, I, I was checking out some research that was done by a, a female researcher who is very well known and leads more to the feminism side, very much not the evangelical side uh, as far as viewing life. 
And she was pointing out how the differences in, in baby girls and, and baby boys. Uh, boys, for example, will tend to push through obstacles. Baby girls will go around obstacles. Boys uh, prefer less complex stimuli. Girls prefer more complex stimuli. Now, we, Pam and I, who have last year became grandparents, we have a, a grand baby, two grandkids, a boy and a girl, both a year old. And we, they're at our house a lot. We get to see them. And sometimes we get to see them together. And here's an example of that. We see this all the time. We, as a matter of fact, what we've done is because the kids come over a lot, we have uh, Pam got like a toy box. It's basically just kind of a rolling bin that's filled with toys about this tall. And we roll that out into the living room when they're over and they play with the toys. Well, when they play with the toys, Toby's approach to the toy box is that he looks at the toy box and then he just climbs in the toy box <laughs> and kind of just throws things, you know, and, and things just kind of scatter from there. Aria's approach to the toy box is go to the edge of the toy box, peer in there, and pull out one thing and then play for that come and get another one. And then when they're together, one time I remember Toby's in the toy box doing his thing and then Arya's watching him for a while, so then she decides to get in the toy box. So she steps into the toy box, and she's in there for about three seconds and like, nah, and then steps back out of it. <laughs> Kids are just different by creation, by design. It's supposed to be that way. You can't deny it. Researchers, even who want to deny it, can't deny it. This research that, uh, that I cited was... Uh, Carol Gilligan, a famous researcher, again, not evangelical at all, would, would approach life completely a different way. But here's how she would describe it. She would say, men see themselves as maturing when they separate. Women see themselves as maturing when they attach. It's kind of the results of her that men and women are just different in this way. She would go on to say, men have, I don't know that she would call it a gift, but I would, men have the gift of independence, and women have the, and I'll call it a gift again, women have the gift of interdependence. So Carol Gilligan would say, men, you know, their thing is independence, women thing is interdependence, and then she'll go on to very extremes to say why interdependence is way better. But the point is, they're both good. We're just different. And so the more research people do, the more they keep coming up. It's a brick wall. They can't get past it. It's just the way it is. Now, what I want to point out is something that a lot of Christians have never seen before, that we can see the differences right in the Bible. We don't have to go into the New Testament and look at roles to see the differences. We see the difference in order of creation, but we can also see the difference even in the curse. And now when I, some of you are going, curse? What, what are we talking about now? The curse is... Something that happened after the fall. So God creates Adam and Eve, and he basically gives them all this freedom. But to test their love to him, he God says, you can eat of all the trees in the garden. You're, you're totally free except for this one tree. You cannot eat of this one tree in the middle of the garden. And so what happens? Satan comes, tempts Eve. Eve eats of the fruit of the tree, and then she shares it with Adam, and all of a sudden sin enters the world. They use their, the gift of the free will that God has given them to rebel against God's commands. 
And then sin enters in the world, and there's a domino effect of sin. But in that, because sin's in the world, sin puts a curse on the man and the woman. But here's what I, that's interesting that I want you to see. The, the man, Adam, and the woman, Eve, they are cursed differently. Adam is cursed by his work, and Eve is cursed in her relationships. And this goes back to all this, this study that people are doing. They'd say, well, men are independent. They want to go out and achieve and make an impact on the world. And women are interdependent. They want to go out and, and network and achieve through networking and doing things together. And so now we have the curse, and that happens in Genesis chapter 3. And I just want you to catch this. Genesis 3.16. It says to the so he he curses Adam. And he says, "Hey, it's now it's going to be it's going to be labor for you to work and and get crops out of the ground. Things are going to be hard. It's going to be frustrating. It's not going to go easy. You're going to want to be independent, make an impact, and that's and that's going to frustrate you. How hard that is to do. And then to the woman, verse sixteen. To the woman, he said, "I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. But here's the key: yet your desire will be for your husband." And he will rule over you. This verse is talking about the result of sin and what sin now being in the world will tend for people to do. Now when we read this, your desire will be for your husband. That sounds positive, but it, it actually is not. Because this word desire and how it's used in Genesis. For example, a few verses later in Genesis 4-7, something else happens. Uh, Cain is... A son of Adam and Eve, and he gives God a sacrifice, and, and God doesn't accept the sacrifice, and he's angry, he's displeased. And then here's what God says, God says to Cain, he says, Sin's crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The word desire, in both connotations, has a negative connotation in both contexts, and it's talking about something that's bad. It's, God uses the word desire here negatively for an attempt to control. So God's telling Cain, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. We're just talking about the word. Sin's crouching at your door. Its desire is to control you. Sin, Cain, sin wants to control you here. You're angry, you're mad, but hey, you need to fight against that. Well, back it up a few verses in the curse. It's the woman's desire will be for her husband... For your husband, but he'll rule over you. This desire means as a result of the, the fall, as a result of sin in the world, a wife's desire will be to control her husband. But he will rule over you. And again, this word, this time the word is different in the way it was used previously in Genesis when he told man and woman will rule over the earth. That's a good thing. But now a different word for rule and this is kind of a harsh, domineering rule. So what's God saying? As a result of sin, the gifts that you've been given uniquely in creation as male and female will tend to be misused in order to tear your relationship apart. The wife will have a tendency, a wrong tendency, to control her husband. And then the husband will have a tendency to dominate 
his wife. And you can see that work out through history. And mostly through history, it's the men are ruling. The men are dominating in a harsh way, a wrong way, their wives. And this is right here in the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. And so basically, you can look at it this way. When femininity goes bad, the interdependence of the wife becomes an attempt to control her husband. And when masculinity goes bad, the man's independence becomes tyranny or dominance over the wife. So the good gifts that God has given us can now be misused, and that misuse will tear at our relationship. So why? Why would God do it? Because of creation? Why would God make roles? Why would that even happen? Because that we are different by design. And then the third reason that I don't want to go into right now because we're going to hit it later is the third reason why is because God has designed roles in order to protect the relationship. And we'll get back to that. So those are the reasons. Now the second question is, so what are the roles? And this makes people nervous. What are the roles? What's going on there? Although we've already alluded to them. What are the roles that God has created for marriage? Last Wednesday, a few days ago, we just finished up a three-week premarital class that we did in room one. Maybe about 20 people in there. It was a great class. Lasted for three weeks. Super cool people. It's just having a blast being in there. But one of the things we were talking about there is just the difficult, you know, marriage is hard. It's two people who do wrong, two sinning people living under the same roof, trying to do life together. There's going to be some bumps. There's going to be some struggles. And we were talking about how messy that could be. And then we were talking about the fact, we were saying, wouldn't it be nice, you know, as we try to figure out how to interact with our spouse, how to do life, how to work out these problems, how to work out disagreements, how to live together more effectively, how to become a team, how to become better in ourselves through becoming a team. We're talking about all this stuff. Wouldn't it be nice if God just flat out told us, here's the 10 ways to do this. Here's the 10 rules of marriage. Boom, and we could just memorize the Ten. Of course, God's given us the Ten Commandments, and a lot of us don't even have those memorized, so you know, maybe that wouldn't be so good. Let's make it easier. What if he said five? Here's the five commandments to do marriage. Better. You know, that would be great. Or the, better yet, the three. I mean, if we're saying better. Three commandments, the three ways to have a better marriage. God doesn't do any of that. God says, here's the one way. One which is great for a guy like me, because I can remember one. Here's the one thing that you need to do to make your marriage work. And by the way, it's different. The one for man and the one for woman, they're not the same. That's exactly what God does. And where that is in Scripture is several places, but the place where it's expanded on the most is Ephesians 5 in the New Testament. So I'd like you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 5 in the New Testament but this same concept is also taught in Colossians chapter 3. It's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in part. And so we're going to look at this uh, teaching that God has given us multiple times. And now, and, and let's look for the one thing that we need to do as husbands and the one thing that we need to do as wives to make our marriages work. Starts in verse 22 of Ephesians chapter 5. Wives... Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being Savior of the body. 
But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Whoa. He continues. Husbands, let me give you the context here. He's writing this, this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he's telling them how to live out the Christian life. And then toward the latter part of the book, he starts calling out different groups of people and speaking to them individually and giving them individualized instructions. That was wives, now husbands, next verse, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he quotes the verse, that foundational verse on marriage that I just mentioned in verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. He kind of puts a summary on there. So what's going on here? God's telling us through Paul in the letter to Ephesians that basically men and women if we want marriage to work, that there's one main thing each of us must do. And for the woman, it's submit or yield to his leadership, be subject to, that the woman should submit. And that's the controversial part. That's where people, you know, scream foul, hey, that shouldn't be that way. What's going on? You know, what's happening? They don't, you know, they don't really get it. And uh, it just causes a, a big mess as people try to, work that out. But the picture that we have in Scripture is a wife, when you come to a disagreement, you talk it all out, and, and if you still have honest disagreements, then the wife yields to the loving, self-sacrificing leadership of the husband. That's the picture that we have. That's how God sees that this should come out. Now, in order to do that, wives, you have to create room for your husband to lead. And uh, you need to, to try to look for ways where you can respect him in, in that way, to give him that leadership. Now, it's not because he's smarter. It's not because he makes way better decisions than she does. I believe it's, this is the reason. Because I believe men, husbands, have a deep-rooted need to be respected. And so when a, a wife yields leadership in a point of disagreement, then that's how he feels respected. Now, on the flip side... The worst thing, I think, maybe the opposite of that, 
is when a wife is critical of her husband. So wives, in calling to voluntarily, you know, we're going to get into this a little bit more, but yielding leadership, and, and that therefore makes them feel respected. The opposite of that is criticism. So the challenge for wives is to be able to communicate with your husbands in a way that's not critical. I'm not saying you shouldn't communicate hard things. Communicate hard things, but just try very hard to do it in a way that doesn't sound like criticism. Because when a husband hears criticism, he feels very disrespected. It will make him feel disrespected. Whether it was meant to be that way or not, that will cause him to feel disrespected. It will start kind of a spiral. Now, on the flip side, men are called to love their wives self-sacrificially. You know, we were talking in the class, and I was pointing out, you know, everybody, everybody looks at these two commands, and, and the feeling is the woman's getting kind of the short change here. The wife is. But think about it. Which is harder, to submit to somebody? We all submit to people. If you drove here, you submitted probably within reasonable amount to the, you probably put your seatbelt on. You probably drove within five miles of the speed limit. You know, that's submission. You have a boss you have to submit to. You went to school. You had to do what the teacher said. We've all learned to submit, almost all of us. But probably a lot fewer of us have learned to love somebody in a self-sacrificing way where we actually put their needs on the same level of our own. And our, motive, and our motive is not so we'll get something back. Our motive is just simply love for the other person. So men are called to self-sacrificing leadership. And how do we know that's such a high call? Because then Paul throws in, if that wasn't hard enough, Paul throws in, you know, like Jesus loved us and died for us. So we used our freedom not only to, to mess up marriage, but we've used our freedom to, to eat of the tree. And all of us have has used our freedom to rebel against God, do things that are wrong. And God's holy and just, and sin has to be punished. If there's justice, has to be punishment. And so we're all in trouble. We all deserve punishment. I deserve punishment. I deserve the, the punishment that the Bible says, separation from God forever, because God is perfectly holy and righteous. And he created me and told me to follow him, and I didn't. I used my freedom to rebel. But God loves us anyway. And so he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross in payment for our sin. And by trusting in Jesus and what he did, by placing our faith in him alone, we can be forgiven of our sin, have a right relationship with God from then on. Past, present, future sins, forgiven, relationship with God. That kind of self-sacrifice is what God calls husbands to love their wives with. It's servant leadership. It's leading selflessly, not in a dictatorial way, not in a domineering way, not in a harsh way. Loving servant leadership, love your wife as yourself. Now, last question. How do these God-created roles work out in real life? I mean, Monday through Friday, what does that look like? How do we do those things how does it look if we could just peel back the layer and see that relationship working out? 
what would it look like? Well, first of all, both needs, the needs of the wife and the needs of the husband, their deepest rooted need, I believe, is met in this. So husbands, as I said, have this deep-rooted deep rooted need to be respected by their wives, and as their wife yields to leadership, they feel respected. Wives have this deep-rooted need to be cherished by their husbands, and as they see their husbands loving them with action, self-sacrificially, not just saying, I love you, loving them with action, self-sacrificially, then they feel cherished, and so those needs are met. So both needs are met. Now, it's easy to get that jacked up, and here's what I want us to think about. A lot of times when things don't go smooth in our relationships, in our marriages, we get into a downward spiral of doing the opposite of what we should be doing. We start reacting because of the curse in the wrong way. So that's just, it's a tendency that we all have. I'll give you an example. Let's say the wife uh, perceives something that happened, and whether it happened or maybe it did or didn't, but... She, something happens that makes her feel less loved than she should feel by her husband. So her husband does something and she doesn't feel cherished. Well, then her natural tendency is to react in a way that feels a little disrespectful to the husband. Then the husband feels disrespected. Then his natural tendency is to react to his wife in a way that feels to her unloving. And then now when she feels even more unloved by her husband through this action, she then responds more in a way that feels disrespectful to the husband. And you have this downward spiral that gets worse. And that's why, check this out, have you ever gotten an argument and then five hours later you're arguing about the argument and you don't remember what you were originally even arguing about, and it doesn't matter because now you're arguing about how you argued. Anybody with me on that? Nobody's ever done that. That's what's happening there. You're reacting and you're arguing about the way you're responding to each other rather than whatever disagreement came up at the beginning. That becomes nothing. It's the way you're reacting to each other that becomes the whole deal. It's this. It only takes one person to break this cycle. So the man, even though, husband, you feel disrespected by your wife, it does not matter. God is calling you to love her self-sacrificially with action anyway. And when you do that, it will break the cycle. And wives, you feel un unloved, you feel uncherished. By your husbands. Respect him. Yield to his leadership anyway. And it will break that downward spiral. So that's how things kind of should work out. And how they sometimes, when things get dicey, they do. And how you can fix that. The point is, what God's trying to say is in marriage, we're a team and we're better together. So we meet each other's needs. That's how it kind of works out. And then this... The way that works out in your life is if you do this, your marriage relationship is protected. Roles are really designed, and we alluded to this earlier as, as why God would do it. 
Roles protect the relationship. And here's, here's what I mean by that. Here's the real world kind of thing. Um, and not everybody believes this. I mean, obviously, we live in a culture that would have a hard time swallowing all this. But here's, here's how it comes down. What if you're in marriage and you come to an honest disagreement, which will happen, by the way, if it hasn't happened yet. Well, who's here who's, mar- who's ever been married and had a disagreement, an honest just disagreement after you talk, you just saw things two different ways, you know, not the same? Yeah, it happens. So you get in a disagreement. You've talked about it. You've looked at the problem. You even come to a point where you see each other's point of view. But at the end of the day, you still have two different opinions on on a decision that needs to be made. Now, people who don't believe that there should be any headship in the relationship are called egalitarians. And so egalitarians would say, then if you don't agree, if you both don't agree, do not make the decision. The problem is, sometimes there are decisions that have to be made, right? Which school are we going to send our kids to? Which house are we going to buy? Sometimes you have to make, it's not an option not to make a decision. And even when it is an option not to make a decision, then sometimes what's happening there is you're always giving in to the person who doesn't like change. So if a decision is, oh, we don't do it, and the decision is always, oh, do something new, no, oh, do this, no, no. And so the person, whoever that might be, who doesn't like change, they automatically win because they're not both agreeing on doing anything new. So either way, a decision is made, or a decision has to be made, and so egalitarians, that doesn't solve the problem. Conversely, Scripture's telling us There's a way. There is a principle of headship recorded for us in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Corinthians 11, that says there is an automatic tiebreaker in the relationship, that God says it it will happen, that you'll come to a big decision in life, and you'll, you'll talk it over, you'll pro and con it, and you'll go all the way through it, you'll see each other's view and opinion, you'll get it, but at the end of the day, you just disagree. It's, a good, it's an okay disagreement. It's just, it's just a bummer because you just both feel that the opposite thing is the way to do. You both feel that a different decision is the way to go. Well, in this model, what God is saying, that before you even get married, or you should just have this understanding that if that happens, then the wife yields that decision to the husband. And the husband steps up and makes a decision. Not necessarily the decision that he wants. He just makes the decision between the two options. And he makes the decision in a loving and selfless way. And so the decision is what he thinks is best for the wife and the family and the marriage relationship. So that's how God has designed it. Now, we pervert this. And I know this doesn't play in our culture. A lot of times, and I did in this class, I use this illustration. You know, let's say some lady is working in a job where there's a lot of ladies around. Maybe she's a hairdresser, and, and her and her new husband have, 
you know, been married for a little while, and then he gets a job offer in Chicago, and it's a better offer, and he wants to go because they'll be better off financially, even with the cost of living. And she thinks, no, we ought to stay here. We have relationships here and family. We're better off here, plus I have a job here, so it's going to be better in the long run. And then he says, no, we, we should go because it'll be better. It'll be better for our kids. And then whether or not your job was better, my job's going to way make up for it. So either way, we're going to be better off financially. It's going to be a win. And then she says, well, no, because by the time we come back and forth and our kids won't know the grandparents, you know, and all this stuff, stuff which is very important, by the way. You know, and they'll be talking about that. And then all of a sudden, and there's just a conflict. And so all the ladies at this gal's work know that this is a conflict. So she walks in the door for her shift and they all say, so what would you guys decide? And she's a Christian. Maybe the only Christian there. And then she says the unthinkable. She says, well, because I'm a Christian, we, you, you know we've been discussing this for like a week. I finally just said, honey, you make the decision. And, of course, you can imagine how they're all, you got to be kidding me. That's crazy. I can't believe, is that what it means to be a Christian? You got what, you, you got to, it's like check your brain at the door and let him make all the decisions for you. What, are we in the 1950s? This makes no sense. What are you thinking? But if she's married to a believer, and she says, well, here's the way I think about it. Somebody has to make a decision. Not making a decision is a decision. And so this has been bothering me, and it's starting to, you know, I could see where it could tear at our relationship, so I'm just giving him, I'm just yielding to him. I'm saying, make the decision. And here's what I know. That no matter what, and I don't know which way he'll decide. I know he has a preference, but I don't know if he'll decide the preference. But whatever he decides, I know He's deciding it because he thinks it's best for me and our family and our marriage. I totally trust him and have full confidence. I may not agree that it's best, but I know he'll be making that decision because he thinks he's convinced it's best. I may think that's stupid, but I know why he's doing it. And all of a sudden that takes all the sting out of submission in a relationship. That's the difference. That's what God has called us to. How does that play out in real life? The thing is, these kinds of decisions don't come up all that much. They're kind of rare. Pam and I, you know, I think back through our marriage. I'm going to have to check with her because I didn't. I meant to ask her this question. Never got a chance to. But, you know, I'm thinking this has happened maybe five times. Maybe, you know, so I'm thinking there's some things I forget stuff. So maybe ten. It just doesn't happen that much. For example, when we decided to, to move to Fremont, you know, I had a good job, a lot of job security, everything was good, but we wanted to, you know, we were planning on going into ministry. We were planning on that I would be a pastor, and I had trained for that, and that wasn't that. And so then I knew a couple here, and so we had a connection, and we had this job offer. It was kind of a weird job offer. It was a full-time custodian and an assistant to the youth pastor when I wasn't being a custodian. Odd. And so we were talking about that. But at some point in the discussion, Pam just said, not that she was against it, but, she, you know, we're just trying to figure it out. And she just said, well, Kevin, you need to make this decision. And you know what? That made me feel like she trusts me and respects me. 
And I want to make the decision that is best for all of us. And then when you have that kind of relationship, you look back after you've been married a long time like we have. And I think about all the things, how Pam has guided our lives, how her influence has made me a better man. And there's like a thousand of these, but I'll share one of them. So, we, you know, I, we're here in, you know, first two or three years we're here. I'm the kind of person that, and a lot of guys are like this, that I can just kind of get into work and I can work 16 hours a day and it's okay. But it was Pam that would remind me, not nag me, but would remind me, hey, Kevin, you know, our kids are young. This only happens once. She told me that a lot. This only happens once. And that brought balance into my life. And today, now that all three of our kids are grown, I realize what a gift she was because without her influence, I would have missed a lot of what was happening with my kids growing up. And I could have never gotten that back. You know, once you lose that, you cannot get that back. And so, who do I have to thank? Well, God for giving me Pam, who was sensitive to that and would keep speaking that into my heart. I'm just saying, God makes the marriage relationship in a way that helps us to come together in a unique way, physically, emotionally, spiritually, to make both of us better. The husband compliments the wife, and the wife compliments the husband. And this happens in a man and woman marriage like it cannot happen in any other relationship, and that's exactly what God has designed marriage for. And I believe when it comes right down to it, it actually reflects the Godhead, the Trinity. Where God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist eternally, three, one God, in three persons. And then the Son voluntarily submits himself with joy to the headship of the Father. And then the Father receives that headship. The Father joyfully accepts that and they interact with each other and there's no inferiority there's no coercion there's no forcing it's all just what what god wants it's a mutual loving mutual respecting relationship and and we get to model that or follow that model i should say maybe in our marriage relationship god brought you your spouse for a reason as to make us all better. Let's stand together for prayer. We'll close out. Father God in heaven, we, we thank you for the day. We thank you for the gift of creation. We thank you for the gift of marriage that has just been bestowed on all humanity. And God, we especially thank you for the gift of your love for us and that you invite us into relationship with you. Uh, through the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross. Thank you for that greatest gift. And God, help us to be better husbands and better wives. And thank you for teaching us how to love, how to love with self-sacrifice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.